0: You're listening to the Denver Real Estate Investing Podcast brought to you by RICO, your local guide for all things real estate investing in Colorado. What's up, Denver? Chris Lopez here, and you're listening to our third episode in our three series on the fundamentals of protecting real estate investments from taxes, legal, insurance, and estate planning. I would definitely recommend you listen to the first two episodes in sequential order. While we talk different topics, they definitely build on top of each other. So in this one, we'll be talking some more advanced estate planning strategies, some tax things to keep in mind, and some different types of investing as limited partner, maybe doing some deals and bringing some money or other partners on. So we got a lot of fun stuff to talk about today. But before we get into this advanced, not old Chris avatar, but the advanced avatar, I got to introduce my panel here. Um, the first one is Pam Moss Garrett with Law Mother. She's our state planner. Good morning, Pam. Good morning. And before I forget, because I mentioned this the last episode, your book, Legally Ever After. This is something you published earlier this year to help uh, parents navigate what they need to know for state planning. And you have a free chapter two on your website, right?
1: Yeah, but I'm giving away a free ebook, the full book to your audience lawmother.com forward slash free book. It's a new link.
0: Oh, great. So that's for a digital PDF version version of the whole thing. Oh, perfect. So make sure you put the link in there. I've read the book. Great read, guys. So make sure you take advantage of that. We have Bill McIntosh with insurance. Bill, welcome back, man. Thanks for having me back. Appreciate it. And then Byron Elliott with Three Pillars Law to talk legal and some tax stuff. Welcome back, Byron. Thanks, Chris. Great to be here. I was very proud to call you Bill this episode. That's 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 good job. Having bees (laughs) and sitting next to each other. Um, so successful podcast. Um, all right. So getting into uh, where advanced Chris is now. I've got you know multiple LLCs uh, with my rental properties. I've got my master holding LLC with you know rental properties there. And as rental properties, rental properties keep getting added. I keep doing the you know one rental property and an LLC owned by that. But we want to spend some time talking about some more advanced estate planning because my kids are getting older. My net worth is getting higher. Uh, and then also, I want to start doing some investing as a limited partner. And I also want to take advantage of being able to structure some deals myself. So There'll be some, you know, a little deal structuring, how to take on capital and things like that. So Byron, we'll start with you since that's what we did the other two episodes. So let's start off with um, talking about the high level, of like just some more passive investing, limited partnership, general partnership. And even before we talk about that, Give us a quick rundown on what syndications, GPLP investing, That's that's new to a lot of people out here.
2: That's great. So this is one of my favorite subjects. Uh, We talked earlier about the personal residence exemption as a way to infuse capital into your portfolio. Um, Another way to kind of get in the game without necessarily having to expend a lot of your own money is through what's commonly referred to as a real estate syndication. So syndication isn't really a legal term but it's legally and ethically raising private money, private equity from investors to invest in a real estate project. And so a uh, very, very common scenario. I'll use, let's say an apartment complex. Yep. Chris um, advanced mature and wise in Chris wants to buy a 200 unit multifamily apartment complex. And so, you know, typically dealing with a commercial lender, you've got to come up with 30% down and you know some additional fees and maybe what's referred to as capex so monies to renovate a project whatever it may be so what we do is form a special purpose entity not to be too confused it's either an llc or limited partnership one of those two types of limited liability entities and that property or that entity is going to take title to the property and so what we're doing on the capital raising side of the house is selling an ownership interest in that company In exchange for that influx of capital to hit that down payment and pay for that. (coughs) A typical scenario is this, you know, this multifamily apartment complex is underperforming for a number of reasons. It could be poor management, it could be deferred maintenance, it could be a lack of marketing, it could be they just haven't raised rents in 10 years. And so there's some opportunity there between what you purchase it at and what ultimately you're going to sell it at. And so for the investors, They get to participate as an owner in the company. They get to enjoy the benefit of depreciation in the first couple of years, and then they get to enjoy typically some form of cash flow in year one through four, and then uh, they participate in what's called the upside. And So if the operator or the person who's raising the capital does a good job uh, conducting their business plan, they'll have raised the value of the property, you know, 1.5234X. Uh, from what the purchase price was. So then there's a big liquidity event, cash out, investors get paid back their capital plus plus some of that profit. And you as the sponsor or the general partner, you get to participate in the upside as well and make some money on the deal. So very, very common right now in the real estate investing space.
0: Yeah. it's it's very, very common, very popular. The apartment syndication is one of the sexy things last couple of years. And, you know, there's really two sides of coin here. You know, there's the the operator or general partnership side. That's the person putting the deal together and, you know, raising millions of dollars to put that together. We won't spend too much time on that because that's a very small slice of our listenership. And we'll do some more detailed podcasts on there. But, you know, that's one of your specialties too in your law practice, Byron. But the other side of the coin is like being an owner or an LP or limited partner. I started investing in these last year, and I know more and more people doing it as, you know, they become more popular. There's the crowd streets out there. People are using it as well. So let's talk about from my side as a limited partner, the, the path of investing. I want to write a check. And there's two main ways people often write checks, either through like their self-directed IRA um, or self-directed 401k, um, or they do it through, you know, just their after-tax dollars. So let's just, in my case, say, I, do, I do after-tax dollars. I've got my master holding LLC for my rental properties, and I got fifty thousand dollars back from my tax refund. This, I want to go out there and invest. Um, so, if I go out there and invest in you know so and so's apartment building, you know Pam's apartment complex, here, I got fifty thousand dollars to give to Pam, what's that look like, and where do I put that through? I assume it's through my master rental LLC, but I'm actually not entirely sure.
2: Yeah, so in, in this scenario where you've got a holding company that has the interest in each of your individual property-level LLCs, maybe it's appropriate to use that holding company. And I think that would be a safe place to put it. Um, as you mentioned, self-directed IRA or 401k, these are great investments for those um, those types of retirement plans because... It is very common that there's a, you know, two, three, four, five-year holding period. So as long as you're not dependent on cash flows from that investment, that may be a good way to use your monies from your retirement plan. So what does that look like? Um, you know, you put your your 50K in. That's a very common minimum investment for one of these, what we call an altern- alternative investment. And so this is a, a, a great example, the avatar from young Chris to mature and wise and Chris at some point here, you want to enjoy the benefits of real estate, but you're not interested in dealing with toilets and termites and tenants. You're going to let somebody else do that. But um, if you find a good operator, a good sponsor, you know the returns on most of these deals are better than what you're going to get in the stock market, and you get the benefit of depreciation. And so um, this is another common mechanism for people to grow their wealth. Uh, exponential in a way that's not available to people who just deal with the typical financial advisor. Mm-hmm. right? And so um, it's, a, it's a great opportunity to get into these alternative investments if you want to put your money to work for you.
0: All right. So from like, if I invest in here and I use my master LLC, my master holding LLC, I mean, Pam and Bill from the estate planning side, insurance side, anything that I should be considered of as just being a limited partner investing,
1: yeah, I mean, I just want to make sure that on your estate planning side, what happens to your interest on death or disability. And we just want to make sure in whatever partnership agreement that you've signed that there's some language of how that flows. And then on your estate planning side, we're setting it up as a way. Um, your kids are minors now, so we don't want it to go through probate. We want to set them up for success and have it go through the right channels if something were to happen to you.
0: Okay. I mean, I don't think anything on the insurance side, Bill, but... I, I, I
3: just think you need to definitely... Be in contact and talking to your commercial insurance agent okay. all the time on this. When you're, when you're first going in to the, when you're you're pulling out, you know, just just get 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 the advice from a commercial agent on that.
0: Perfect. Actually, I got one last question, here, Byron. So I got my master LLC, and I'm going to put this fifty thousand dollars to deploy. Do you any reasons to not write it for my master holding LLC, or if I start a new sub LLC that's just meant for like that
2: LP investing? Yeah. I mean, you, you can do that. Uh, to me, I don't know if the juice is worth the squeeze of having an additional entity to manage. Um, one thing that's important to note in these types of investments, if it's a limited partnership, you're investing in just by the way, a limited partnership is treated. Your limited partner interests shield you from any sort of liability, right? And so at the end of the day, what's your exposure it's, it's your 50 K. Uh, somebody slips on a banana peel in the apartment and breaks their back, they're not coming back to Chris or Chris's holding company. At the end of the day, your liability is limited just to that 50K interest. So that's an important distinction. The other thing um, is just to understand, and this confuses limited partners sometimes, is when you're putting that 50K into that special purpose entity, you're not purchasing a piece of property, not a piece of real property. So real estate and the 1031 stuff that we talked about earlier generally doesn't apply here. So when I get my proceeds back. Can't 1031. Really. You can't 1031. There are some mechanisms, but it's a little bit more advanced and we can get into that in a later episode. But just just be mindful that 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 ownership interest is an ownership interest in personal property treated similar to the table that we're working on, the microphones, the computers, your car, your boat. It's just different from a piece of real estate, which allows you to do the 1031. All
0: right. And then uh, one last thing on this topic, since we're talking investings on here or you know investing strategies, I don't know if JV is the right term for this or partnership, but hey, as people get you know more advanced with their network grows, their capital grows, there's more opportunity to hey they see a deal and they can get a deal together and maybe bring on a few partners. Um, let's say it might be a small office building, for example, because uh, you know one of my goals is next year next. A year at 18 months is buying a new office building for Envision Advisors and, you know, bringing some team members and keep people on their help. You know, number one, help fund it, help find the deal and, you know, play to our strengths. So not really like, I'd say syndication, like we see on podcast or, you know, Pam's $10 million apartment building. But with that, what do I need to keep in mind for a smaller partnership or is that JVD? I do know what I'd call that.
2: Yeah. So, so good. This is a very common progression for our clients, similar to the Chris saga here. Is you're buying, you know, a property here, a property there, until your balance sheet culminates and you can no longer borrow, right? And so, really, the next logical step is, you know, a joint venture, and that could be either a separate agreement, or it can be you're taking title to a property as tenants in common with somebody else that you know that's bringing capital to the table, um, or you have a, an LLC and you you spell out the terms and conditions between the parties in an LLC operating agreement. But it's very common that at some point that you're gonna bring other people into a deal. Now, what's important to note, this is a very important distinction, a joint venture typically in that context, each person is actively participating in what's happening. So they have some sort of role to play. So in your building that you're describing, you're not going to take passive investor money, purchase the building, and then give a return to those passive investors that would be mischaracterized as a joint venture because not everybody's actively participating. So joint ventures are when everyone's actively participating, that's, that's right. kind of, okay. That's exactly it. And so yeah. okay. if you, if you wanna look it up, it's called the Howey test, but it gives you a number of factors. But at the end of the day, it boils down to, somebody gives you money and they're totally reliant on your hustle in order to provide them a return and they are not participating at all, that's a, that's a security. That's a, an investment contract. Now we're getting to syndication, private equity raises and all the securities acts, navigation that has to happen. Um, it's very common for people to try to characterize uh, a syndication as a joint venture because they don't want to deal with compliance and they don't want to mm. deal with the legal work up front. But at the end of the day, if you're an aspiring real estate investor and operator who wants to syndicate somewhere down the road, getting caught selling securities under the guise of a joint venture agreement is a bad way to kick off that career.
0: So no, no there. Um, (laughs) And obviously, like, I mean, we started getting some weeds on there. And, you know, that's, that's, it's some very advanced topics and, you know, very situational because I've talked to you a few times about some stuff I'm working on, Byron. So always, you know, reach out to Byron or, or the appropriate expert. Um, But the biggest thing on there is, no handshake agreements right always right. make yep. sure things are properly structured so we don't make a mistake of what
2: young chris did with his first fiction flip right i'm that, learning here right. all right that's true and then making sure that if you are doing a joint venture agreement make sure that you if questions are scrutinized you can show the level of participation by each person
0: okay so last question on this topic then i got some estate plan questions for you pam um when, if I'm working on deals, when do I start talking to you or my, my, my legal counsel for how to structure it? Cause it's, it's very fluid. And I see a lot of times people like get the deal, they're close to the closing table, and then they're kind of figuring this stuff out. And there's like the speed versus prep, you know, the, there's always that balance. So what's, what's ideal?
2: Yeah. So I'm, from my perspective and the way that our firm works and our associates and our of counsel attorneys is we want to be on the front end of that discussion as soon as possible. I know a lot of people think that they're going to end up spending a bunch of money talking to an attorney, but, you know, we'll talk to you for 15, 30 minutes. Sometimes it gets into an hour, whatever. I would rather be on the front end, make sure that before you get too far down that road that you haven't, you know, violated, you know, what the SEC is looking for in terms of what you can and can't communicate and then giving you options on how to structure a deal. So for example, you know, somebody who wants to pull together a deal, um, you know, you can do it as a tenants in common position and everybody owns an, uh, an interest in the property, right? If your ultimate goal is to 1031, maybe that's a better structure than a, a typical syndication where you're selling a membership interest in a company, right? You always got to take a look at who are the investors that you're going to use. And I don't want to get too far down the road here, but if your plan is to use friends and family, which is the natural progression, once you get out of a joint venture and you're looking to raise private equity, everyone goes to a friends and family round first. Well, once you start putting out offering details, you can no longer establish what's called a pre existing relationship if you're using the typical friends and family vehicle, which is a Rule 506B offering. And so, um, without belaboring that point, it's just the timing is very important. And so, if you at the outset, you know that most of your investors are going to be non accredited investors, friends and family types, talk to an attorney early on in the process so that you don't spoil an opportunity to create the type of relationships that you need to raise the amount of money that you need yeah. to close the deal.
0: And I mean, for people who are new to this, some of those terms, they're gonna go straight over their head because there's a lot of terms you threw in there that's, you know, new to people and, and they're complex. From the high level, once you start into that, definitely talk to Byron or your attorney sooner rather than later. Cause the key there is you start getting to some selling some securities versus real estate and securities are way more highly regulated than real estate is. And that's where you have to really know what's going on and, you know, CYA. Um, Pam, now I know, you know, in context with all this, what should we need to know? I'm assuming it's the same stuff, but just, hey, make sure it's properly designated and, you know, there's a a line of succession. Any different advice when we've talked about some different rental and other investments for this, if I'm, being mindful of my state planning.
1: Yeah, so on the prior episodes, we talked about probate avoidance. We talked about kind of setting your kids up for success. I would say at this age, um, and kind of the size of the portfolio, now we're looking at advanced planning and we're looking at you know estate tax minimization. So here in Colorado, we only have the federal estate tax. If you own investments in other parts of the country, there's also a state and federal. And so we really wanna do planning um, right now, that's 40% is the tax upon death, when we're talking about a death or estate tax. And you get a certain amount that you can pass on without having to pay that. Now, in in the early two thousand and late 2000s, that number was $2,000. $2,000 was your freebie amount.
0: 2000 or $2 million?
1: Two, I'm sorry, $2 million. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> like, wow, it went up a lot. Yeah, it went up a lot. And then under the Trump administration, it went up to $11 million for an individual. And we can structure it as double for a couple. Um, So with inflation today, um, as of the recording, we're over 12 million, but that's set to sunset in 2025 to 5 million. And we're seeing with inflation, it's going to be back down to closer to 6 million. And so this is very much based on who's in power. And so that's one of the things I talked about with my clients. You know, you're going to live a long, healthy life, Chris. Your assets are going to continue to grow. And at some point, estate taxes are going to be a big problem for you. And so we can do the right ahead of time planning to minimize your exposure to that.
0: And you would say kind of like as, you know, a certain, I guess, a certain portfolio size, what's kind of like the net worth? Or is it basically just kind of like the state tax limit? Is that kind of the barometer for when you get into advanced stuff?
1: Yeah, so a lot of my clients right now who, you know, back in November, there was a proposal to go back down to 6 million starting 2022 and so our office was flooded with calls back in November that didn't go through. I think right now kind of the guiding light is if you're getting close to that 6 million mark and you want to minimize your state taxes, kind of now's the time to put the plan in place over the next couple of years. Okay. And then to continue to have that conversation, we want to have that relationship with all of our clients that we're staying informed and we're staying connected as things change. Um, and then the other component is, you know, really asset protection for your children. And one of the mistakes that I see people making, um, especially with adult children, is this kind of backdoor estate planning. They own some real estate and so they just quit claim the deed um, to add their children that are adult children as tenants and conmen or a joint with right of survivorship. And you're really causing a lot of problems by doing that. The first is kind of that tax component. You're not getting that step up in basis from a capital gain standpoint.
0: Let's talk about that because this is, I mean, that stepped up basis, you know, when when you when you know I die and goes to my kids is like one of the best tax gifts in the world, it seems, especially as you get higher net worth. Can you describe what stepped-up basis is and just kind of make sure, help help drive home just how important it is and how much money it can save?
1: Yeah. I mean, it makes a big difference when you're doing this. Like, I have a lot of clients in their 50s and 60s who are probably going to live for another 40 years. And when they're adding their kids to the title now and then they die, they're going to get taxed on that gain from the point of when they made the transfer to the point of death. And if you... If you wait and you don't make that transfer, so we put it in a living trust instead, and we do all the goodies that you want when you're trying to do that in life, right? So we set up a living trust. We have all the asset protection components in place. Um, but instead of quick claiming it now, we put it in a living trust. Then they don't get taxed until that difference from the time of death to that time of sale.
0: And to give an example now, you can, I'll use, let's say that fourplex, let's say I bought it for a million dollars for easy math, Um and then, you know, I keep trying, you know, just, I hold on to it. And when I die a long time, it's worth $3 million, you know, far, far out on the, far out in the future. Um, you know, I bought for $1 million. I died, it's worth 3 million. I have $2 million in, in capital gains there. Now, if I added my kids to it, uh, they would have to pay somebody if I die and it's properly planned for my kids get the property at the 3 million valuation and that's the new basis. And they pay Zero taxes, right? Yep,
1: as long as they sell it within that time frame. Yeah. When you, well, you even it if they the sell
0: it then a couple of years later, they still use three million yeah, they still dollars use the three million, versus yeah. the one million I actually paid for it.
2: Exactly. And yep. so you
0: know we're talking in that case a two million dollar difference in capital gains. And what's the capital gains tax rate right now?
2: Twenties somewhere
0: in a Okay. Yeah. So I mean we're talking hundreds of thousands <gasps> of dollars easily yeah. in capital gains, potential savings and whatever all that stuff. So we're talking big money.
1: Yeah, and then the other component of it is just setting up asset protection for your kids. So, you know, a lot of times we see parents doing these things where they add their kids to the deed, and then the unexpected happens and they're in an accident and the adult child and then pass away. And um, now it's going outside of the family to that future spouse or things are passing through and getting lost in a divorce. So I always share, you know, my colleague inherited some real estate, she inherited some money, and then she went through divorce and had to give half of it to her ex-spouse. Whereas if her parents had set up estate planning correctly, they really could have kept that real estate in the family and not going to future divorces, future creditors. So we can really set it up in a great way for adult children to really protect them.
0: Okay. Um, And you had mentioned fraudulent transfers. We were talking about this before we hit record on, on this podcast here. Um, talk about that because that uh, it sounds like, you know, it happens and there's some really big consequences on here in Colorado.
1: Yeah. So you and I talked about this on the prior podcast and here in Colorado, we have a fraud transfer act that's very, very harsh. And what a fraudulent transfer is, is if there's a claim against you. So you get in a car accident and the next day, even though if there's not a lawsuit, it's from when the harm starts, you go and transfer your real estate. So you quit claim your deed to your house um, to your brother that next day, that can be argued as a fraudulent transfer. And so I think I shared on the podcast I had that exact situation. I had my client was on the back of a motorcycle and someone ran a red light, crashed into her. The next day she quit claimed the deed for her house and parker to her brother. And at trial, the jury got to hear that she did that as consciousness of guilt because we had kind of a she said, she said situation. And then we were able to bring a separate lawsuit for fraudulent transfer with increase in the amount of um, potential damages. And we got a $4.2 million verdict at trial on that oh, case wow. against her. Um, the other case I shared on your podcast was my client was sexually assaulted by her doctor. He owned the commercial real estate. He owned his real estate. Um, she made a claim to the medical board. Um, and the next you know week, He transferred all of his commercial and residential real estate to his wife. That was public record. Before I found out about it quick, so before I even filed the lawsuit, I was able to go into a court and do what's called a pre-judgment writ of attachment and say to the judge, Judge, I'm afraid that he's going to get rid of all of his assets. We need to freeze his assets. So before he even got to appear and make an appearance on his own behalf, I was able to freeze all of his bank accounts you know serve every bank he was at and freeze all of his accounts before I even filed the lawsuit because he made those transfers and we were also able to bring claims against the real estate claims against him so um it's a really really bad advice but a lot of lawyers in Colorado don't know the simple principle of hey if a claim is against you and i have people come to my office all the time who are like hey i want to move things into a living trust i think you know and i have to really educate them on this and And it's one of those things that when you're talking about asset protection, it's really important to do planning ahead of time.
0: All right. That is great. Uh, Great stuff to keep in mind. And Bill, this kind of brings up an insurance thing, because we were talking about this before we record as well, because, you know, while we have the, you know, uh, people transferring property, there's also, I think, insurance claims are are more common. Like, what do you see and what do you recommend people do or don't do when something bad happens?
3: Um, So... You you can't make any changes. Uh, what 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 happens? Uh, wh- I had a client who uh, we're transferring her insurance to a different company. Uh, in between the transfer, uh, she uh, got her vehicle stolen. There's just it, there's this unknown. There, do you file a claim on your new company? No, because it's not uh, it's not even in play until the ninth. You know, so you have to go uh, to your old company. You have to keep things going through for that, that claim. So just don't, don't be transferring things uh, while you're in, especially a big claim. Uh, You don't want to be transferring your insurance companies. You want to stick there. Plus insurance companies, uh, we're going to take care of you better if they don't think you're leaving them, you know? And so if you're leaving them, they're not, they're going to be like, oh, well, I don't care, you know, type of thing. So uh, they want to make you a happy customer uh, while you're with them. So just, just pause it, even if it costs you a couple extra bucks, uh, you know, for having something in, in play that, that you didn't want to. Make sure you keep that uh, in play and uh, follow through the claim until the end and then then make the transfers.
0: So the moral of the story I get from both your you guys here is, I mean, once something happens, just own it. And like, you know, don't do anything rash, but talk to your team. But most importantly is planning. It comes down to preparation and planning. Because when that stuff happens, whatever you had planned before or how good or how bad it was, that's how it's going to fall through. So once it's happened, you're kind of out of luck. So make sure your plan's in place, right? That's the most important.
1: Yeah. And so that's where we get to the difference between the word asset protection and wealth preservation. And every time my clients are coming to me, I'm like, let's convert to wealth preservation because under the law, wealth preservation is fully legal Asset protection sometimes can be seen as illegal.
0: Can you right. define those two for me? I think I know what you're saying, but...
1: Yeah, I mean, so it's... When we're talking about protecting assets from valid claims... We're getting into a fraudulent transfer, which is illegal under the law. Okay. When we're talking about putting the right ahead of time planning in place to preserve your assets, we're talking about wealth preservation. And so a lot of my clients who are in real estate investors who are, or are in high-risk professions, they're lawyers, they're doctors, they know that they're in a litigious field. As, yeah. a, realist, as a real estate investor, you're in a litigious field. So do the right ahead of time planning. It's perfectly fine to put things in an LLC now. It's perfectly fine to transfer things to your spouse now from a wealth preservation. It's just once a claim is made, it's too late for certain assets. And so we can always have the conversation if it's too late. Um, But exactly what you said is kind of shifting that mindset of doing the right ahead of time planning.
0: I love that. So wealth preservation is definitely the mindset to go in and also the, the, the right way to do things. All right. I got one more thing here I definitely want to cover on this episode. And this is definitely a more advanced topic. And, you know, Byron, you can give a rundown on this. Uh, it's really talking about the real estate professional status, you know, what tax benefits that gets you. And also, there's some really great bonus depreciation that people can take care of through like cost segregation. So I threw a lot of words out there that probably put half the audience to sleep right there. Um, but you're very good at simple explanations, Byron. So can you kind of give us a rundown on that and, and, what it is, and and why Advanced Chris
2: should uh, know about this. Yes, finally, finally. This is one of my favorite subjects. (laughs) So rather than just give you definitions, I'll tell you a quick story. Even better. So Advanced Byron was retiring (laughs) from uh, the military in 2019, and I stumbled across the real estate uh, professional designation. So this is a designation uh, that the IRS gives you. And what it effectively does, it's important to note that activities such as your 1099 real estate job, in my case, it was my active duty military job, W 2 pay, any ordinary income that you have, that cannot be offset by passive losses. But if you conduct certain activities, if you have the right assets, then you can qualify what's called a real estate professional designation, which means you can cross the streams, right? Ghostbusters, they say, don't cross the (laughs) streams. We're crossing the streams. I get the analogy. It's beautiful, right? So in this scenario, when you have depreciation losses from a real estate asset, which is very common if you're buying something and fixing it up, then you can use those losses to offset active income. So I'll share with you how it played out in my scenario. So I had six months of active duty income with the military, but I was on my, what's called terminal leave, my vacation. So for ordinary income purposes, I had monies coming in from my pay. I had, at that time I was practicing at the law firm, according to the IRS, less than 50% of the time. And I was engaged heavily in real estate investing activities. So if you are investing uh, time in real estate investing activities, Uh, at least 750 hours in a given year. And the majority of the time, this real estate professional designation allows you to take passive losses and apply it towards ordinary income. So in that scenario, we had purchased uh, a couple multifamily buildings and our office space. And so On the ordinary income side of the house, between my wife and I, our money from the firm, which would include W2 pay from the firm plus distributions at the end of the year, we had a pretty sizable tax bill to pay. However, we were able to take both our office space and a multi use um, apartment building that we have and do what's called a cost segregation. So, a cost segregation is a study conducted by either an engineer or CPA, and basically, imagine that you're neo in the matrix and you have the ability to take a building and break it apart into its components. So rather than the typical straight line depreciation that people are used to, like one twenty seventh of what you know the, the basis is each year you depreciate that as a phantom loss, you actually break apart the components and each component depreciates I'm using air quotes at a faster rate, some faster than others and so, what you're effectively able to do by doing a cost segregation study is take a lot of depreciation expense up front.
0: And so rather than everything being done over 27.5 years residential, the, the doors, the fixtures, the trees, they're on like a five or seven year schedule. So I'm able to, to front load it more, right?
2: Correct. And so on one hand, I'm faced with this sizable tax bill because I have, you know, sizable ordinary income. I have two buildings worth of depreciation where I did a cost segregation study and then I accelerated the depreciation. So it took quite a bit on the first one to two years. I was able to reduce my ordinary income, taxable income to zero. And so effectively not pay income tax in a given year, although we were, you know, well over six figures. So like I would tell advanced Chris now. You're going to have a bunch of ordinary income coming in from your real estate business, from your media company, from my wife's W-2, your wife's W-2 is very important. All of that ordinary income. If you manage it effectively, the purchase of real estate assets on a year to year basis, you can effectively reduce your taxable income to almost nothing or less and carry it forward in subsequent years. Yeah. It's, it's an incredible, powerful strategy.
0: And I mean, one where you just like scratch the surface, but you get this massive loss. And this is what took me a while to wrap my head around, you know, years ago as I learned this is, you get this massive paper loss, or I think phantom loss is, the, is, the, is probably the proper term for it, where, hey, you lost $200,000 on paper, but it's not really $200,000 leaving my checking account. But that $200,000 loss now reduces my $200,000 income over here, Greatly so. If that's you know the thirty five percent tax bracket, that's what seventy grand right there I could potentially get back in my taxes this year.
2: Yep. And you're actually if you have rental income coming in from your passive activities, you can reduce that as well. So that's the part I didn't explain. So I reduced our rental income to zero. Right. So on paper it looked like I didn't make any money, but you know we pocketed X dollars, you know, and then took the remainder and applied it against our ordinary income otherwise, and reduced that to zero that's really really powerful stuff so you know the one challenge is on an ongoing basis you're going to go work with lenders again on subsequent purchases and you have to deal with lenders who are savvy enough to back out that depreciation loss and realize yes you do have income coming in like yeah. you're playing the game at its highest level here but some some lenders especially junior you know junior loan officers and whatnot they'll look at your tax return and they think you made you made no money yep Right, and your your property's actually lost money because you reduced that taxable income. When at the end of the day, you're making thirty five percent to thirty nine percent more than what you would otherwise. It's an amazing, amazing opportunity in the real estate industry. So
0: there's this is a a very dense subject, and you know, great job explaining like three minutes. But we'll we'll scratch surface on there. So there's lots of great resources. You know, Google it for more details. I've done some deeper dives on that in the past. I hopefully will do some more in the future. But it's a great strategy and not just for people who are like, you know, full-time real estate entrepreneurs like I am, but there's a lot of people, you know, very common for like a medical doctor or, you know, a, a small business or professional owner, you know, one of the spouses is the doctor owns it and the other spouse spouses, you know, part-time their stay-at-home uh, figure. And then that, that spouse who has the time, um, they go out there and, and do the work to meet the uh, rep status, and then it's a great way for them to work as a team and really reduce their tax liability to where, hey, that person has time, their spouse slash partner has income, but no time, and it's a great way to really maximize benefits. So definitely dig into it. I would recommend everyone uh, start researching that strategy and see where it fits into your portfolio if it does. So I'm curious from like Pam and Bill, I think that's probably a little more advanced with you guys. Than though Thoughts or questions or anything that would impact Estate or insurance? I don't think it would, but just general comments or questions on there?
1: No, I mean, I think Byron did a good job of simplifying it and I was, you know, taking notes during it. So I appreciate it. <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> awesome. Um, all right. So I got all the bullet points. I'm very proud of us. I know we have a couple in past 30 minutes, but I got all my bullet points crossed off here for advanced Chris on strategies. So I very much appreciate guys going through these, been jam packed episodes. Our plan is to. Publish these, Hope to give people a lot of that high-level key information so they're like, hey, here's a course we need to know. Let me go act on this and talk to the appropriate professionals to build their team. But listeners out there, come back with questions, email us, let us know, because we're going to take the feedback, take the questions, come back in the future and do some like deeper dives into more of these topics as we get real-time feedback from uh, uh, listeners here. Because what we talked about here for young Chris, intermediate Chris, advanced Chris, those Chris are nothing special. Very, very typical avatars we see out there for investors and a very typical like story arc we see of investors if they live a long, healthy life and, and play the game. That's our goal. Pam, Bill, Byron, I appreciate you guys spending so much time with us. I know it's a drive for a couple of you guys. We've been a couple hours in podcast studio. This was awesome. I highly recommend people reach out to you guys for any questions, for reviews. You guys do a lot for me and I can't recommend you guys enough, so thank you.
2: Thank Thank you. you. Thanks Thanks again for the chance.
0: And viewers out there, do us a favor, leave comments, make sure you like, subscribe, because this is content that we love doing and very, very important to help you preserve your wealth. We'll see you next podcast.